Hello, everyone, and welcome to the future of space. I'm your host, Daniel Fox. Our guest today is a very special lady. Her name is Nancy Conrad. She is the founder and chair of the Conrad Foundation. Her late husband, Pete Conrad, was the third person to walk on the moon. Nancy, it is a, a delight to have you on the future space. Thank you, Danny. I'm delighted to be with you. All right, before we get into the work that you do with the Conrad Foundation and some of your um, history within the space community, could you share with us three words that capture the essence of space? For me, right? <laughs> not for, for you, indeed. Not for everyone. So I'd probably start with the word dangerous, um, exciting, and essential. Essential. Why essential? Because it's how we learn about Earth from space, how we learn about how to solve Earth's challenges. And looking back from the moon and from space, we can see a whole lot more. It's like being in an airplane looking down at a city. You can actually grasp the entire concept in a visual. Being able to look back and giving context of where we come from, whether it was leaving the village at the beginning, climbing the mountain and looking down and seeing the where the village is, close to the river, seeing the connection to all these places. Because when you're just in that place, it's hard to being able to understand the complexity and the connections. But now being able to go to space and looking back and seeing the blackness of space, seeing the specialness of life, obviously enhances the value and the understanding of how precious life is and also how kind of petty all their problems seem to be when you realize you all live on that pale blue dot, you know, that, uh, that Carl Sagan said. Blue and white marbles suspended in a black velvet sky. And I think all the guys that walked on the moon looked back and saw the fragility of earth and the fact that there are no borders and there are no boundaries. We create those. And so the humanity of humankind and the intersection of all of us hanging out on this little blue and white marble just becomes a really clear and really elegant. And that's the, the, the irony of the, what we did by going to the moon. We were so focused on going to the moon to discover about the moon. But then the biggest lesson that came out of it was learning about ourselves and the planet and i think these these yep. journeys of discoveries while the motivation might be to go and discover something new the biggest lessons are always about ourselves and our own place and our own uh, story now, what do you think right that's why i use the word essential excellent now yeah, it's you obviously have a long story with space. Your husband went and walked on the moon. There's obviously there's there's the, the 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 old story why we went to the moon. There's the science aspect. There's the technology aspect of going to the moon. But what do you think is the human story of going to space and beyond? I I think it really is as I've said to to understand Earth. Um, solve some of the challenges of Earth, especially as we look at climate. But but on a broader scale, and it may be a more esoteric scale, if you will, 
it's this no borders and no boundaries that I tend to focus on in my work. And, and all of the guys looked at that and saw that same thing. And it, to me, that is just so profound. This is the this is the humanity of humankind. I mean, we are all here. Look what's going on in the world right now. And because of technology, which really came from those lunar expeditions, we are able to see what's going on worldwide. Um, many years ago, this gentleman who was did architectonics, his name honestly was Wendell Wendell, and we did this event in New York uh, with. Um, a bunch of young people from Germany. And it was really all about studying space, but when you study space, you're studying Earth, right? So they were looking at how to integrate humanity in a small environment. Well, we've done that, we've been there and done that, and how might we use technology as a source of peace. So Wendell Wendell said, we called him Wendell Squared. He said, you know, if you were to drop television sets in every community all around the world and be able to record everything that happens to humanity, he thought war would end. Unfortunately, that just didn't happen to be correct. But now we can see um, man's humanity to man or humankind's humanity to humankind and our inhumanity. And it's, it's such a profound way to look at what goes on on our little blue and white marble. So we better be kind to each other because we don't, you know, this is a little tiny place when you really look at it in the whole. And then look at the web telescope out there is going to discover all sorts of other things. We're going to become even smaller. And, our, you know, I think there's such an opportunity particularly for young people, we work with Gen Z. You know, these are the kids that grew up on the Internet. So they don't see borders or boundaries. They see the world the way Pete saw it from the moon. And they tend to work with each other. They don't care where you live or what your gender is or socioeconomic. They care about what's between your ears and how you want to be part of designing a better future. So fascinating thing to watch. And... Um, that my takeaway from that work is, is a four-letter word. It's called hope. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that that's a whole lead into the whole universe I live in. But, um, you know, it, it, space is, everyone who has seen, you know, the, the overview and all that, that's one piece of it. But going into deep space and exploring and going back to the moon and then potentially onto Mars, that's going to be a real hairball to get to Mars, but that's another conversation. But going back to the moon, um, I think it's incredibly important and probably creating a lunar outpost, a moon base, so we can do deeper and wider studies of Earth and potentially even do manufacturing or bring back, build the infrastructure to bring back helium-3 so we can have clean nuclear energy. So those are the potential things that can happen there. Other thing that I love to look at is how, when we do that, can we create a civil society that really is an intersected humanity? And that's where these kids that we work with will be the ones that will be doing that as it goes forward. So tell us more about those, this young generation. How do they see, they live, 
they've grown up with the internet. They have, I would say, a higher level of anxiety that I grew up with, being aware of all this information. The stories also that we've created about the human species and now space and how some of the stories about space are dividing. What is space for them? Well, that's an interesting question. Some of we, So our students are all over the world. They work to solve global and local challenges, and they work in space, energy, cyber, and health. The ones that tend to work in the space sector see the potential of things like colonizing the moon, and they create commercially viable products to solve challenges in each of these four categories. So they will do things like um, food products that can be, you know, for long duration exploration space flight or um, ways to find missing objects that float away. We don't have a box. We don't say make this and if you make it better, you win. They can make whatever they want. I think that the, the perspective of space per se with the kids, we students we tend to work with is, as I've said, a place where humanity can actually intersect with each other without the borders and boundaries and all of the restrictions and philosophies and politics and economic factors and everything. We could create a whole brave new world. Wouldn't that be fun? So that's one of the things I'm working on. Do you think that the human species is would not say a bad species, but is, do you believe that life is messy or that the human species is not too kind? Hmm. I don't think it's, a, I think it's a yes and. <laughs> I mean, there are bad humans. There are good humans. You know, throughout history, there have been bad humans and good humans. The goal is to really open that corridor for these young people. It all goes back really to education. Um, I mean, seriously, when we invite young people into their own learning process, it's a game changer. If we look at the system that's 200 years old, that's in our classrooms, worldwide really, here particularly in this country, it's, it's a memorization, take a test, and if you pass it, you know something. You really don't. Um, you learn how to memorize something. So that creates passivity and, and a definition of intelligence that's a, a um, inaccurate definition. I mean, that, you know, because you can memorize stuff doesn't mean you're smart. So that, I think, begets a society of young people that don't know how to think. And they don't know how to learn. But when you open that up and you bring them into their own learning process, it's an extraordinary opportunity for them to bloom. I, I mean, I watch kids find their superpowers. Every year, we, these kids just bloom like, like sunflowers in a field because they're invited to be part of what tomorrow looks like. So what I call it pull education. We do push now. I'd like to see more pull and as these kids work together across countries, cities, states, genders, social, they don't see the borders. This is where education can start to become diplomacy. And wouldn't it be nice if peace breaks out, you know? That could be the end game. But 
I would, I would love to see an upskilling of our education for young people, which I believe would upskill humanity. Now, you're going to always have thorns on rosebuds. That's just the way the world works. And not everybody's going to be a good guy or a good gal or whatever. But the chances of young people really being purpose-driven and doing good work expands, I believe, exponentially when you include them in their learning. It's a start. I mean, it's. I think it's one of the big differences of the old ways of teaching to now where before it was just about giving directions for them to follow. And now it's about hopefully giving them the tools so that they can do problem solving. Because when you do problem solving, there, there are two things really that happens. First of all, you get that challenge of figuring out by yourself. You got this sense of accomplishment when you, when you, when you get it, but also it forces you to think outside the box so that you can figure out new ways. Um, because you never know exactly what the world, the future will be, what you what you know or what you can do. Exactly. And this is what I, I say to young people is that what I can do is I can give you the skills to deal with whatever is coming your way. We can't predict the future. I cannot tell you that it's going to be this or that, but I know that there's going to be some challenges and I'm going to give you a skill set that can figure out whatever it is. And I think that's what... That's how the astronauts are being trained to f having a foundation and problem solving so that when they, they, they are faced with the unexpected, they figure a way out of it. So speaking of unexpected, when Pete and the crew of Apollo 12 launched, they were struck by lightning. So... <laughs> They had trained like crazy, you know, this light goes on and that light goes, the whole cockpit lit up like a Christmas tree. Nobody's ever trained for that. So somebody, you know, it was the intersection really of design thinking and systems thinking to solve that situation. The work that we do is very much focused on that same intersection um, of design thinking. So create the solution and then find the deployment of it. So don't just make the plug, make the socket. And it, you said out of the box, we don't have a box, Daniel. So we don't say make this and if you make it better, you win. So we actually created a no box toolbox so that young people could understand how design thinking and creating something unique that, that's innovative and different and, you know, another mousetrap, if you will, but how does that fit into helping society and sustainability and communities of practice all over the world? So our kids will do things like portable water purification systems, low cost. It's in a birthing clinic in the Congo where babies used to come out of the womb washed in dirty water. Now they're washed in clean water. Nine countries. It's in nine countries. Kids created a way to put out forest fires using sound. What? Yeah. And, you know, biodegradable fishing nets with catch and release systems in it so we don't dirty up the oceans. These kids are all focused on sustainability. It's center of their credenza. You know, this is a time where young people are really learning about Earth's fragility. It's so profoundly evident to these young people. And they want to be part of the solution. They don't want to be part of the problem. So that's the coolest part of the whole thing, I think. 
I find it's really hard for me to have a doom view of the world when I see the work and I see the, the potential and the discoveries when you work with children because you you see them blooming and you cannot but be yeah. hopeful, not even hopeful, but be energized by where we're going. Not oh. not dismissing the challenges that we're going through, but seeing the future. Oh, but yeah, I mean, these kids are really serious. There was a teacher that I think he's going to be with us again this year. He's been with us for many years. And he came up to me. We were at Kennedy Space Center at our finals. We Every year we host our finals at a NASA Field Center. <laughs> he came up to me and he said, you have the most amazing energy. What do you do? I said, injections. He said, I knew it. What do you take? I said, hope. <laughs> it's these kids that give you hope. They will be a whole different, I believe, generation of young people that will be very, very engaged in what the future looks like. You know, we don't know what workforce is going to look like in five years. We have the foggiest idea, really. But if you can create, when you create a generation of young people who don't have a box, who are not restricted by, well, you can't do that, and who are invited to be participants in that learning process. And we've got some hope that, that we will survive and we will sustain. And, you know, space is probably going to be part of that. I love when they talk about um, we're going to have a woman's boots on the moon. Well, she may or may not wear boots. You know, they may be stilettos. Who knows? I think it's an opportunity for some awesome shoe company to make a really cool moon boot for her. The first woman on the moon. I love the. Anyway, that's all. Conversation. No, yeah. <laughs> I remember when you said that to me the first time. I said, "This woman is cool. She's talking about stilettos <laughs> and the moon. I think we need to." Stilettos. <laughs> you know, at least a high heeled pump or something. Absolutely. You know? <laughs> How about an espadrille? A lunar espadrille. There you go. I'm 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 excited as the expansion of what we think of our lives to be kind of within the what we've been living for you know for decades. But this new future, what is going to bring a different vision? Whether it's the arts, you know, I told you I was talking to Chris Hatfield, the astronaut, and so much of her conversation was about the arts. What are going to be the new mediums of arts and the new expression? And as we get to the moon, all these these different avenues, these different outlets, these different perspectives that are just going to enrich and elevate our lives. And the children are going to be right at the core of it. Oh, they'll be right at the center of it. I mean, did you ever imagine as a young man that the word NFT would come into your lexicon? Who knew? You know, I mean, there's so many things that have evolved in the last five, ten years even. I mean, that are stunning. And I get to watch it, which is great fun. And I get to participate in it as a, as a, um, I guess, sort of like a, a, an organizer of tomorrow. How's that? A framework for tomorrow. So how did you get to start? to get the vision of the Conrad Foundation. Obviously, your husband was an astronaut. When he passed away of an accident, fortunately, you 
did a lot of work to tell the story and you produced um, documentaries. I mean, you can co-author some books, but that is obviously one direction of using your story, your, your, your space connection. But you went and really started the Conrad Foundation. Can you share with us that journey? So uh, full disclosure, I'm a teacher. <laughs> so teachers are like spies. You know, spies always spy. Teachers always teach. And I have been working in this purpose-driven education sector for many years. When Pete was alive, I had an astronaut licensing company. And we made games and books and toys and comic books, kind of real superheroes telling stories that are, were exemplars of um, people who'd actually done some extraordinary things. So when I came up for air, which took some time, believe me, because that was horrible. It was a real intersection of my passion for purpose-driven, student-led education and Pete's story. Now, Pete was a young man that grew up in a a fancy neighborhood, went to a fancy school, and he had a problem learning. He He couldn't read or spell. He had a terrible time reading and spelling, and they didn't know what dyslexia was back in the day, so they thought he was stupid. And he got expelled from this very prestigious school. He was learning to fly about the same time they threw him out, and he soloed when he was 16. So his mom was, she made his whole life. She found a little boarding school in upstate New York, and she took him to this school, and the headmaster saw something special in Pete and took him under his wing, and Pete ended up with a scholarship to Princeton, which was compliments of Princeton and the Navy. So he got to Princeton, he became an aeronautical engineer. It made perfect sense. Daniel didn't have to read or spell, and he liked to fly. When he graduated from Princeton, he owed the Navy some time, so he was flying off the decks, you know, carriers and having a good old time of it. And then President Kennedy wanted some guys to go to the moon. He liked to fly. So he began that career as an astronaut. He had four flights in space. Gemini 5, which established we could be there for eight days, which was necessary. Gemini 11, which established rendezvous. And then he and his crew, uh, Al Bean and Dick Gordon, did a pinpoint landing on the moon. you got to think about that. There was nothing to navigate from. They landed next to a surveyor. And then he flew Skylab, our first space station, damaged at launch. He rescued the lab. For that, he was awarded a Congressional Space Medal of Honor. Not bad for a kid that got expelled, right? So, and then he went on to work in the aerospace industry. I mean, it was his passion. And toward the end of his life, he was flying a vehicle, a single stage to orbit SSTO called a Delta Clipper, the DCX, experimental rocket. And it was really the birthplace of what is now the commercialization and privatization of space. So when Branson, Musk, and Bezos do today, in large part, stands on the shoulders of guys like Pete. So I looked at all of this and I went, you know, an educator took a kid under his wing and that kid got a moonshot. That's what we're going to do with kids a moonshot. So I took Pete's legacy of education, innovation, and entrepreneurship 
and my passion for education. Put those two pieces together, voila, became the Conrad Challenge. So we're in our 16th year, and uh, kids come into this competition from all over the world, literally from Australia to Zimbabwe and everything in between. It's difficult. It's a funneled competition. They write business plans, market studies, prototype their product ideas, and it's funneled. And the kids that end up finalists get invited to our Innovation Summit, which we will hold this year at Space Center Houston at the end of this month. So you never know what's going to... I mean, every year it just is amazing. They, they pull your socks off. They're just incredible kids. And beyond that, what happens is they become a real community of young people, young innovators from all over the world, and they have a um, network. Networking is everything. We have our alumni that can work with them. Now these kids are connected to government industry and academic leaders. They have a network. They have support. We've taken them under our wing and given them their moonshot. It's super cool. It is super cool. I want to go back to school now. <laughs> <laughs> me too. You said me two too. things that really resonated with me when you were talking about Pete's story. The first one was is the reality of being dyslexic. And I find that unfortunately today we try to normalize everything, all the people, by giving them these medications and because they, they get out of the norm a little bit of seeing the world in a different ways. And I think that instead of seeing these people as a victim, we should see them as special or artists and understand that they bring a diversity to the table that is so much important. And then the other thing that yeah, you said absolutely. that resonated also was how important these people that you meet in that formative years, you know, between 16 and 25, because often you talk to children or to adults and you ask them, so what, what made you choose that career? And it's so far away from what they liked or what they wanted to do. It's just that there are these key people in their lives that kind of opened doors and made it, well, I have a job for you. And what is unfortunate is, if you were able to go back and remove as many frictions as possible between their interest, their desire of wanting to be, and the actualization of that interest, a lot more people would find these career that fulfill them as opposed to feeling it's like, well, you know, I wanted to be this and then it was too difficult. So whoever presented me with the first opportunity, I took it. So I guess this is the networking and everything, this is what you're doing, part of the, the, the curriculum at the, the foundation, correct? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's massively important, I think, to have a community around you. Um, we do a lot with these students during the whole course of the competition. We have workshops and bring in speakers for them to learn about things, everything from astronauts to artists to um you name it, they meet with them. And then when we get to summit, the alumni come and they work with these youngsters that have come in and are following in their footsteps so that it really is community. Um, I find community throughout life, Daniel. I live in a community now. So it's humanity can embrace you if you allow it. And because you have something a little different, like 
Uh, you can't read or spell, or you're tall, or you're short, or you're old, or you're young, or you're you're fat, or you're thin, or whatever it might be. As I mentioned to you, these kids really don't care. It's just extraordinary. They are so excited about participating in tomorrow that those sorts of differences just aren't even in the conversation now. Are they special? Probably. But they come from public, private, charter, magnet, home schools, tribal nations, uh, often Timbuktu, rural areas. They're all over the place. So I, I don't know what the threat is. You know, we're, we're part of the Lost Einstein study. Um, I talked to, to the guys that were doing it. I said, they're doing this whole Lost Einsteins, these kids that don't have a shot. So I said, well, we found them. We found the Lost Einsteins. So we're studying these young people that, that tend to come into our program because we don't judge. We, we evaluate, and they, it's difficult, as I mentioned to you, but it's such a great, tightly knit community that there's, they found a home. And I, and I do tell Pete's story because it's, it's an embrace of kids that may have a little bit of a problem, a little autism or dyslexia, or they got ADHD. We'd never even heard of that when I was a kid. Who knew what ADHD was? So a lot of this is, I don't know, it's a, I think some of this is just the time we live in. They, everything has to have a label and a slot it fits into. And some of these kids, you know, they're different in their own ways and they're same. They're still kids. Because I think that once you're able to identify a cause and feed that victimization or the victim narrative, then it takes away the responsibility that you can shape your future as opposed to say, well, you know, it's not my fault. I have this. Therefore, it explains right. all of that. The other way around would be. Yeah, exactly. we can all feel sorry. There was this, um, I don't know if you heard this story of this. It was a blind, he's called the bat, Batman, but he's blind, but his mother never raised him to limit himself and to do less. He actually grew up riding a bicycle and just creating a world that was really just for him and seeing the world in a different place. And he, and he said in his, in his life how when he started to hang out with other blind people, it was really hard for him because they were all brought up under this victimhood, this victimization that for him he couldn't identify. He saw, he saw his limitation as an asset rather than as a deficit. Well, and I think many people with these sorts, like Pete's dyslexia, he had a photographic memory. He was great at operating machines. He understood that. Uh, he didn't have to read or spell. And his sanctuary was anything that was a machine. It wasn't speed. It was airplanes and motorcycles and race boats. And a thing that he could operate was what he really resonated with. And that was his joy. And boy, did he love dicey weather. Oh, my goodness. And when, when uh, before GPS, by the way, we used to you know go somewhere and we'd get a rental car. And he would inevitably get lost so he could find his way back. It was a riot. I mean, it was almost like intentional. You know, there are talents and capabilities of people that have differences. 
and and explore your own expand on what you have in your gift find your gift remember i said to you that these kids bloom they can come in a lone wolf and we've seen it and all of a sudden they have all of these friends and they're accepted and they're embraced and they win or they don't win everybody wins that's there because it's such an extraordinary experience for these young people i can't tell you how many college admission letters i write and how many times I get notes from these kids. Dear mom. Sorry, good mother. Okay. Really fun. And they we don't we don't fund these kids, by the way. This is really important. You know, if we were to say, oh, this is awesome, and here's a hundred thousand dollars, and you know, go for it, they're gonna fail. You can't grow a company, you can't really do stuff. It's very expensive. The prize that we do give is they become Pete Conrad Scholars. It's a big honor. It happens to be one of the top credentials for college admission. And the selected teams get patents, full patents, full IP, and they own it. Now, they can license it. They can put it on their college admission thing. It looks pretty good when you've got, a, you know, IP on your college admission form. And whether they go to college or they don't go to college, they have learned their superpower, and that's the most important part of it all. So you're giving them, the community, the sense of possibilities, the opportunities, and giving them also the understanding that it's there for them, they have the tools, but they still have to really participate and get themselves into the process. That is just not a one-way ticket, here it is. Because that is, I think for a lot of people, it stops there. Like, oh, I'm giving you this experience, and that's it, you know. But I think the hard work. Well, or well, here's money. Now you can go forward and multiply. And I think that's that's an. Error. And by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this because this is really important. These kids work in teams, two to five in a team. So in addition to what they're creating, they're learning leadership, communication, cooperation, and collaboration. Huge part of what we do. And those teams, like I said, they can cross over countries, cities, states, socioeconomic. So it's really putting them into the tapestry of the future so that they participate in very deep ways in this, in this process. So how do you find, who decides on, on the, the giving away the prize? What are the characteristics or the criteria selections that you're looking for uh, for the winners? So going into the funnel, we have uh, a rubric and we have about 500 judges that these all come in on the internet. And so we have judges that evaluate them with our rubric and we have a Supreme judge. <laughs> a gentleman has been helping us. That's part of our board. That's just wonderful. Actually, he was one of the co-founders of match.com. So he understands analytics and systems and all sorts of things. So he helps us with that, and we have all these judges that come from government, industry, and academia, and they evaluate these student portfolios, and it's funneled. And so they, we have the kids come in, then we have the semifinalists, and then the finalists, and then the finalists are invited to pitch in real time. This is the first time, Daniel, in two years that we've been able to have an in-person summit. So we're very excited. There were a lot of kids that couldn't travel, so we did a virtual showcase for them uh, next week. It's going to happen. So 
Um, the evaluation process is now we're, we're doing a refresh. Some of our alumni are now, uh, one graduated from Stanford Biz, um, MBA, and one is venture capitalist. And I've asked these young people to refresh the framework for what we do. So we don't stagnate. We are always looking at how might we be design and systems thinkers and how might we be more innovative and entrepreneurial. So we had to do that when the pandemic hit. We had to find a platform for us to, to do the event. So we are, um, we're, we're, we're working as much as the kids are. The, the whole team is dedicated to giving them an extraordinary experience. It's not just winning. The winning is part of it. All of these kids are winners. They all become Conrad innovators. They stay with us, as I mentioned, year over year. And it's, that's really exciting to me. And what's the age of that for these young um, individuals that they can start applying? So, so I'm a high school teacher. So we work with high school kids. Pete got his moonshot in high school. We work with students 13 to 18. It happens on the internet. Um, they sign up. They form a team. They have to have a coach. The coach can be a parent, a teacher, an after-school person, a university student. It must be an adult. Could be a professor. Could be someone in industry. As long as they have an adult, and the adult is there to guide and to assist, but not to push. To really be there for these kids to uh, expand their own thinking skills. It's a little bit. I mean, how I see parenting is creating a safe environment for children to explore, understanding okay. the. In that process of exploring, they have to push the boundaries. I mean, I remember when I grew up, you know, our parents would kind of push us outdoor and and then tell us to, you know, to come back later. And that and we would go and roam the woods and climb up trees, which was usually the easy part. And then we would have to figure out how to come down, you know, the tree. But there was always this understanding of in my family that there was all risk was inherent to parenting and you want as a parent to be able to know for your children to know that they can they can hurt themselves to a certain degree they can explore they can it can be risky but there's always a safe place for them to come back and right. and and be and grow and this is what you do with the, the foundation and with the challenge is giving them that safe that safe environment with a sense of community, that sense of resourcefulness and where they can go and go for the moonshot and go for these things and fail knowing that there's always a place for them to go back and learn for. So there's um, a great quote on our website. You'll see it. It's an image of Pete. It's an awesome image. And it says, in the space business, failure is not an option. In entrepreneurship, it's mandatory. So, you know, take the risk. Um, I think it's, we, we built the framework. I, I don't know, you know, I am woman. So when I put this together, I built, and my team, we built a framework for kids to feel safe in their exploring. Um, I think that's incredibly important. We want them to, to do things that are way out there. 
And we don't say, oh, no, that's terrible. You can't do that. We don't have a box. Like I said, we have a no-box toolbox. So um, it's not a poster. It's not a science fair. It's much more like Shark Tank meets the Academy Awards for students. Yeah, that's an easy way to think about it. And you're all going to gather uh, coming up in April 18th, I believe, in Houston, correct? April 26th to 29th at Space Center Houston. Next week will be the virtual showcase for the students who cannot travel. Um, and it'll be pitch sessions. I don't know if, I don't think it's open to the public. I'm pretty sure it isn't. But if someone wants an invitation, they can find me and I'm happy to see if I can make that happen. How big is the, I mean, now with so many years into the program, the, the, the first ones are adult in their career. Do you still get postcards um, calling you mom, you know, calling you mom, yeah, thank yeah. you. And do you recognize them on, on TV? Yeah. So a couple of these young people are, one's on our board of directors, one's on our advisory board. They're part of our alumni leadership council. They're part of our alumni ambassadors program. So it's a community. It really is. It's a big family of Conrad and Conraders and Conrad innovators. And they stay with us year over year. Um, I, I'll share a story with you that I just find so amazing. In about 2010, I think it was, we worked with NASA for our kids to create a food product, meeting NASA's standards for nutrition that was suitable for exploration and long-duration spaceflight. We flew some stuff in zero-G to see what was workable in this and that. And we got the, the rubric from NASA and these kids, students created all sorts of product. And these sisters won that competition. They had a nutrition bar. It went up on STS-134 with Mark Kelly. They got to go to the launch. I mean, this was rocket stuff, you know, and they were on CNN and all this kind of stuff. So the older sister ended up at Cornell. The younger one went to Columbia. The older sister got the space bug. And she ended up working at a satellite launch company out of Boulder, Colorado. So pause that for a second. One of the first directors on my board is a guy named Joe Rothenberg. Joe was the deputy administrator under Dan Golden at NASA headquarters. Joe's working now on a project to measure methane gas on the planet in real time. It's never been done. So... He gets on a call with the team that's doing the satellite part of this. And at the other end of the phone is our student who participated with us in 2010. That's, those are great stories. That's what can happen to these young people. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I think essential. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add my thank you on behalf of, of everybody that you've influenced. You've created, I mean, you've helped create generations of, of resilient individuals who believe in themselves, who believe that even if there are problems, they can fix them, uh, that don't get bogged down with the, the failures and the mistakes, that they understand that it's part of that journey of discovery, um, and then that they, they still want to move forward and, and keep pushing those boundaries that I think that makes the human story so incredible. So thank you. Um, 
the, it's coming up. If they want to sh learn more, they go on the website and all the information is there for them, correct? Yeah, it's conradchallenge.org. And if anyone wants to reach out to me personally, that's fine too. It's and Conrad at conradchallenge.org. Nancy, it was a pleasure to have you to learn more and to see all the amazing work that you do. Thank you so very much for being on the Future Space. Uh, Daniel, thank you for the great work you are doing. We are sort of parallel tracking here, and I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you. So for now, let's just do a virtual high five, and then until we, we see in, in yeah. person. <laughs> much smaller than your hand. Can you do that? Oh, no. I'm No, it's... I can do it on, I can do it on this one, but this one I can't. Uh, yeah. That is good I've looked at. <laughs> That's Nancy, one of our challenges. Thank you so much. My honor. My honor. Thank you.